So you want to be a chef, you're either in high school considering continuing on to a culinary post-secondary program, or you're in a career that you find unrewarding or unsatisfying for whatever reason, and you want to somehow pursue a career in culinary. You're probably a glutton for punishment. And, well, let's say you're a self-proclaimed foodie. You put on amazing dinner parties and your friends have all raved about your cooking and how you should open a restaurant, right? You source local ingredients from your vendor friends at the farmer's market. You have extensive knowledge of the different ingredients, spices, histories, and have a cool little anecdote for each little sprinkle you add to the food. Well, before I go in too deep, let's just say that maybe you check one of these boxes, and if so, you're probably asking yourself, is there a career in food for me? I didn't want to make this podcast on this topic to discourage you or to make fun of whatever choice that you're going to make or whatever you want to do. And I don't want to give you any unreal expectations of what a career in this industry will hold for you. But what I can tell you is that the expectations for a job in this industry haven't changed. What has changed is the type of careers that you can pursue today compared to the past. So today on the Aimless Cook Podcast, I'm going to ask you, why the do you want a career in the food industry? So let me tell you a little bit about myself. In case you don't know who I am, my name is Jay Del Coro. I'm a chef in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and I've been cooking professionally for just over 30 years. Now, I have taken some years off as well to do some other things and pursuits that I have always thought I would be good at, but I always came back to cooking. Um, so, like many young cooks, or like many just young people in general, uh, I started as a dishwasher and a delivery driver at my local neighborhood pub when I was about 21. And at the time, I was supporting a new baby daughter, and I was looking to go to art college to become a, a graphic designer. So um, I spent my evenings washing dishes, delivering pizzas, and of course getting caught up in all of that kitchen culture at the time, which included, you know, the usual foul-mouthed cooks, crude jokes, $5 steak sandwiches, karaoke night, and this line cook named Jim. Now Jim worked the line for a few months before starting the culinary program at SATE. Now this was about 1991. Um, the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology, in case you don't know, it is currently probably one of the best schools in the Western Canada for culinary. And coincidentally, where my son currently goes. So uh, as soon as Jim started this program, he would start showing up at work with his, with his uh, whites from school, complete with his name tag and his toque. And, you know, meanwhile, the rest of us were like rocking our you know, least crumpled rock band t-shirts, battered 501s and vans. So this was 1991, of course, like I said before. Grunge was just starting out and kind of Nirvana was just the thing that was just coming out as well. And there was no food network. So, you know, there was no, you know, focus on chefs being rock stars or anything like that. It was essentially a job like any other job. So one night Jim was talking about what he was learning at school and about knife skills, and Rob, Rob was the head chef in that kitchen. He wanted to show 
he wanted Jim to show him what he learned by handing him a few of the white mushrooms that were on the line. And he asked them to, you know, slice them for him like you would for a pizza because we sold pizza at the time. It was a pizza place, sports bar pizza, you know. Um, so Jim takes the mushroom, puts it down on the board, and then just took a run at it, literally. So it was evident by the look of the mushroom that, like, Jim wasn't either paying attention that day at school or had a lot of practice to do. Uh, so, you know, I was washing dishes, and I kind of turned around to see what they were laughing about, and Rob was just laughing, saying, you're taking a run at it. You're just taking a run at it. I watched Rob take a mushroom from the cold table, put it on the board so that the end of the stem and the edge of the cap formed a base as he held it in place, and then he proceeded to slice it into consistent thin slices, which was kind of cool. So he took another one, and I really looked closely this time on how he did it, and then another, and then another, and as he did so, he explained about, you know, making the a, a stable base out of, you know, irregularly shaped ingredients, either by doing something like that or just cutting your own base, and I don't know. It seemed like things seemed to click. So I asked if I could try it out. And I took one, I got the knife, put it down the way I saw Rob do, and then I sliced it. And though my cuts weren't as consistent, of course, I felt that the, the stability, of course, made it easier and it made sense. And with practice, I could be just as good. So it was at that moment that I started to get an appreciation for cooking. And shortly after that night, I started to do more cooking. I was doing a lot of prep, of course, like deveining buckets and buckets of shrimp or cutting onions, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, and, you know, the first jobs on the line were, of course, assembling pizzas or finishing wings, but mostly it was watching Rob make the different dishes. And in hindsight, when I look at it now, there were a lot of shortcuts and some terrible recipes that were supposed to be dishes. Um, like the fettuccine Alfredo, which I'll tell you right now is nothing like anything you've ever seen, but you've probably eaten if you have ordered a fettuccine Alfredo from any one of these kinds of uh, neighborhood sports bar pubs. This Alfredo consisted of a skillet with half and half chicken stock powder, sour cream and garlic butter which is all thrown together uh, with some frozen peas near the end and then when it was combined the pasta was added which was like cold you know pre-cooked pasta from a five gallon you know cold water jug in the walk-in and I guarantee you like I just said that someone is doing this right now or you're probably eating some right now if you ordered from one of those places and I won't tell you about which place this was but I guarantee you someone is doing that at this very moment. I think that the thing I found so fascinating about it all wasn't the dishes themselves, of course, but the methods, you know, and the techniques that were used to make all of these dishes at scale. From prepping ingredients, which I did a ton of, to like final firing and assembling of dishes when guests, of course, came to order at the restaurant. So when we were busy, there was like an orchestra to conduct. And basically, that's what I saw. Like everything had to, had their roles to play. Time was precious. And like every second, like they say in The Bear, if you watch The Bear, every second counts. The dishes are all, you know, 
timed precisely to make it all to the pass at the same time. Mind you, it's not like the kind of special forces kind of way that a um, a fine dining place like a linear or somewhere would, you know, time dishes exactly to, you know, to be ready at the same time on the pass. But I mean, pre precision timing is all the same. So after cooking for a while at that restaurant, I really started to get comfortable working with ingredients and making meals at home, which didn't require opening pouches from a box. Because my home cooking repertoire at that time was essentially like anything from a can or hamburger helper. Hamburger helper, of course, you know, one of those nostalgia things. Also at that time, my mom taught me how to make adobo, which is of course one of the easiest recipes for such a quintessentially Filipino comfort food dish. So, you know, all of that experience came to make me a better cook at home. So years went by, I kind of did different jobs, blah, blah, blah. And we're fast forwarding now to 2009. Now, I was working a corporate job, doing all the things that were required that I thought of, of life, like a suburban home, decent job and family. And then, you know, my relationship ended and uh, it was abrupt, like moving and starting over. And at the time, there was just like such like this void in my life that I had to, you know, figuring out figure out something to do to just kind of pass time and not be so miserable. So a friend that I knew from my corporate job had suggested I get a part-time job. And she knew an owner of a sushi bar in town that needed just someone to help out in the kitchen. I said, anything would probably be good at this point. I don't care. So I went to go meet this guy and he just wanted someone to help in the dishwasher you know, and then maybe do some, you know, light cooking and whatever as I went on. So I thought, you know, that's perfect. Get my mind off everything. And I found myself eventually working nights, three nights a week at this, at this sushi bar. So the sushi bar had a kitchen in the back where all the hot dishes were made. So of course, all of the uh, tempura, donburi, uh, udon, soba, grilled saba, all of that kind of uh, typical izakaya fare. And it was a cool place to work. I really enjoyed that place, had an amazing experience during my time. And I learned so much about Japanese cooking as well as of, you know, Japanese language, because everyone there was Japanese. Most of them were on working holidays. English was like super limited. So, you know, I still understand Japanese to this day. But sadly, I don't get to use it as much. So, um... So that was a big chapter. And all of this time I had to, to kill at home on the evenings when I wasn't working, I did, um, I did something really unexpected. I started a vlog, which is completely out of left field. Now, since I had been using YouTube a lot, watching YouTube a lot to escape and travel to other places other than where I was... Um, one of the, the things I started watching was a lot of vloggers in Japan, like J-vloggers uh, from Japan and Korea as well. And there was a lot of people that I was introduced to from watching their vlogs that I'm still friends with today. So I'm just going to name a few like Kevin O'Shea, who is known as Busan Kevin, uh, Victor Baggio, a.k.a. Give Me a Break Man, Steve Miller, a.k.a. Chi Ranger, 
And then, of course, Taro, a.k.a. Runny Runny 999. And Mike Durkey, who is also known as Durkey in Korea. These names might not mean a lot to you today, but back in the day, you know, they were pretty popular vloggers. And like YouTube is, you know, while I'm at that on that subject, wasn't the YouTube that you see today. There was no, there was no, um, if you like this, smash the like button and subscribe. None of that. Basically, YouTube was a community, was built by these creators that had no idea that they were, you know, building the type of, uh, of uh, you know, a lot of them, they're full-blown businesses and a lot of people that are in YouTube do it full-time. But it wasn't, you know, like that before. You know what I'm saying? So starting a vlog back in 2009 wasn't like the same thing as it is today. So like I said, there are so many resources out there today for creators, which really weren't there. We weren't even called creators. It just wasn't a thing to call that back then. So there was a, a show I remember, of course, one of my friends, Hyla Johnson from Hyla Cooking. Uh, her husband, uh, now husband, Chris Sharp, who produces an uber popular channel now, Yoga with Adrienne. Um, you know, we still talk on Facebook about, you know, those days of YouTube being like the, the good old days. So, um, so yeah, I started a vlog. And I had this expensive, at the time, uh, Sony handheld digital camcorder. Because, of course, you know, phones weren't nearly as good enough to do um, YouTube videos. So I had this digital camcorder that I used for my vlogs, which uh, at first started like any other by just documenting daily life. But then one day I decided to film myself cooking dinner. And it was a cooking tutorial that I did on a dish that I had learned at work called Nikujaga, which is essentially like a Japanese, you know, super easy beef stew. You use thinly sliced beef, potatoes, and, uh, you know, if you want to see it, it's still out there. I left it online and it looks terrible. I will leave the link in the show notes. Uh, of course, my lighting was terrible. I had no light set up and it was all handheld, you know, you know, cutting with one hand and stuff. And basically it was terrible to say the least, but it was the beginning of something that brought me to the point of where I am now. So basically, from there, this is where the YouTube part of uh, my story kind of came, you know, came to grow. The YouTube channel grew, and gradually, to my surprise, I was starting to get subscribers, you know, who also started commenting on videos that I had uh, put up. And I engaged them regularly because, you know, wanted to build a community. We didn't think about it that way. It was just answering people's questions and whatnot. But I also reached out to other YouTubers and also made connections, which was kind of how I started uploading videos in the first place, because it was uh, Kevin O'Shea, who, of course, one holiday had a video that just said, send us your clips from where you are saying Merry Christmas. It was as easy as that. I sent a, a, a clip in, and then I saw it on his, his vlog, and I thought, wow, this is cool. I want to do that. So that's how I started doing that. So, um, of course, at that time, you know, we had no idea 
well, maybe we did have a little bit of idea, but we were just making friends at the time. We were making a community, friends, and as I was doing more cooking videos, I started making friends with other cooks. And if you ever remember watching um, Taro from Runny Runny 999, you'll know that if you are familiar with his videos, that he always makes... Uh, he makes his recipes like an order, like a viewer makes an order, like a, re a request, and then he'll make it. And what happened is, if you watch way back, I had made the first order. No joke. We had collabed years ago, and I had said, you know, I'm hungry. Will you make me this thing? And then he, he that was the first time he actually did that. So it was kind of cool. And then eventually, yeah, we became friends. So since the recipes that I were making were like basically, well, a lot of Japanese stuff, a lot of Asian, but you know, since the recipes were kind of rando, basically new discoveries, new interests, experiments, I had decided to name the show, which was, you know, becoming more of a of a thing now to call it a show the aimless cook so i you know i had the name i got a url i made a logo all of that stuff and eventually the channel got pretty good so i had some experience under the belt upgraded a camera i was starting to get paid because i became a partner in 2011 and 2010 maybe i don't remember but uh became a partner which was a pretty cool, pretty cool thing. Uh, in 2011, YouTube chose me to be part of a group that was called YouTube Next Chef. And it was a boot camp, basically, that took place where you would learn all the ins and outs of creating next-level video content with mentors that you would meet with every week. So there's people like uh, Hannah Hart and uh, Nico's Kitchen, who Rob Nixon is now who's um, also still friends with on Facebook. He has restaurants now, actually. And uh, a bunch of professionals, either from the YouTube offices or from Google, who would teach you about optimization and all of the stuff that you can learn on resources today on any channel on YouTube. So this stuff was very much new at the time. So basically, like I said, we were learning to create next level video content. And the kicker was that we also got all of this cool free equipment. So I got a new digital SLR. I got a Manfrotto tripod, all this cool stuff, a road mic, lighting. I still have the lighting, which is probably pretty primitive by the standards today. But I had all this stuff. I still have the camera. I still use the camera. Um, yeah, $10,000 worth of stuff and free promotion. And we had media coverage. The newspapers did, you know, and it gave us all a good popularity boost. And there was a lot of people in this group, like Hyla was in that group. And Rebecca Lando was from a show called Working Class Foodies. Uh, Laura, Laura Vital from uh, Laura in the Kitchen. And at the time when we were doing those classes, I learned that Laura and her husband actually built a kitchen set in their basement to shoot her videos, which I thought at the time was so extreme. But as you know, nowadays, it's like pretty commonplace. So um, there I was, I was cooking a lot. I made th videos about three times a week, getting tons of views and comments. And at the time, the subscriber count was going over 30, 38,000. Currently, right now, 
all these years later is about 42,000. And I was doing all that while I was still working my corporate job full time, traveling, all that stuff. Now that 40,000 is pretty tiny compared to the Josh Weissmans out there and the Marion Grasby's and, and uh, who else is popular nowadays? You know, Uncle Nigel, whatever. Uncle Roger, Uncle Roger. <laughs> in addition to all of these celebrity chefs that are also jumping into the fold, like Gordon Ramsay. Uh, like, I mean, today the YouTube cooking space is huge, to say the least. But at the time, you know, there was just us, and it was cool. Now, because of the experience I had in making content, I started to get clients who would also pay me to make content for them. And one of the clients was a farmer's market. And it was at this market where I met a vendor named Margaret Namath. And uh, she owns a soup and sandwich restaurant, still does today. And she was a really outgoing, friendly, genuine person. And she's still my friend today. And my mentor, actually, and she was the first person who, after watching my videos, had ever asked me if I ever considered opening a restaurant. And of course, the answer is always like, hell no. Why the hell would I want to do that? You know, I want to be a Josh Weissman. I didn't say that, but I wanted to be a full-time YouTuber. And, uh, you know, I was really going through that. I was at the peak. We were producing a lot of videos consistently, doing all of the things that, you know, creators would do in order to build a channel that would grow to that, you know, to that, uh, to that, uh, size, you know, to make a business for yourself. Um, but a small part of me also wanted to grow my brand locally. I wanted to do that. And, uh, and more importantly, I guess for me, I wanted to validate in the form of something tangible that my cooking was legit because of course you watch a lot of these recipes on youtube and you don't know if the food is really good like how many people actually make the food on on a on a recipe show you do it just mostly to watch i'll tell you that it's why food network was so popular and that is why influencers today are so popular because people just want to look at the food maybe go to the places that are in the in the thing and i have a whole new episode you know like a whole different episode just on influencers alone and my thoughts on that so anyways back to the story um the opportunity to open a restaurant came in the form of a summer contract at a farmer's market in a small town outside of my town calgary uh, called Millerville and they have a summer farmer's market every year as well as a yearly uh, Christmas market so Margaret picked up the concession contract for the season and instead of running it as a single vendor she wanted to turn it into five windows there were five windows in the kitchen she wanted to turn it into five separate vendors serving different types of foods. So she would handle the burgers. There would be some guy doing Indian food. There was a guy doing shawarma. There is gourmet hot dogs. And then Pan-Asian, which was me. Because the last contractor quit near the end of the season, we had one day of the regular season. And then this Christmas market, which was a four-day event in November, around Remembrance Day, so which was around November. Okay. And I remember it vividly because there, that winter it arrived like a beast. 
So we were doing this Christmas market and it's like minus 20 degrees Celsius throughout the entire weekend. Like super like Arctic cold blast. And I made the simple menu. We wanted to stick with something that was like maybe less than 10 items, like a food truck, basically. And the theme was Asian street food. So we had uh, laksa. We did a seafood curry laksa. We did bibimbap, like, you know, rice bowls. And then kind of snacky things. We had a Korean breakfast taco that we did. We had uh, chicken karage that I'd learned from uh, the sushi restaurant that I that you'd put in like a Chinese takeout box. And at the time we had those white Chinese takeout box with the red pagoda on the on the on the outside. And basically you'd put the chicken in there, squirt in some of the sauce, whatever sauce you wanted to put in there, and then close the box, shake it up, and then you eat the the chicken. Um, so despite the arctic conditions outside i'll tell you we were crushed and it was so busy we made like i think eight grand that just in the four days and at that time you know it was all cash so we had this just this huge ridiculous wad of cash at the end of this weekend and it was just like crazy and from that moment on, I just caught the bug, man. I love the feeling of all of those people enjoying the food. Like my validation was more than paid off and I couldn't get enough of it. And I couldn't wait for summer season. So that was how Eats of Asia, my restaurant, was born. Basically, that is a story of how I came to be at the point I am at now. And during that time, during the time I ran my restaurant, it's been about 10 years that I ran Eats of Asia, um, I've had a lot of opportunities to do a lot of cool things. I've worked with a lot of students. I've worked with high school students. I've hired a lot of those students who some of still work for me today, and some who have moved on to post-secondary or gone on to other jobs. And it's been good because I've had the chance to mentor all of these kids, give them their first uh, job experience in the industry, and it's been really rewarding for me. As well, I have had the chance to work with some of my colleagues in this industry who work in other places teaching people like... Um, uh, new um, immigrant women and teaching them job skills and line cook classes and of course all of that to get their you know foot in the door in hospitality and uh, in the cooking industry and it has been really cool to be able to teach these women because there's nothing I love more than teaching people who really care about what they want to do and really take the time and the effort to do their best. And that is really the key because I always say to my kids, all you have to do is care and I will teach you the rest. And that is still something I say today. So the other reason that I was telling you this story is because I've been through a lot of different places inadvertently in this journey to take me to where I am today. And as you can see through going through like right from washing dishes to being a delivery driver, to being a prep cook, to doing YouTube, to teaching kids in schools and immigrant women and working your own restaurant, that there are so many things that you can do in this industry. 
Now, my own journey has taught me a lot of things. And one of those things is that you don't have to, you know, approach something like your passion with a preconceived notion that it has to be done a certain way. And if that makes sense, because I mean, like you can start a restaurant business, you can start a kind of uh, food entrepreneurship of your own that doesn't have to follow a certain formula, if that makes sense. And we're going to go into that in depth more in future episodes. But I just want to, you know, make it clear that there are a lot of um, people out there that are doing just this now. And like, I mean, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff on this show, not just being an entrepreneur in the food world, but, you know, about everything like restaurants, like food topics, pop culture, everything. So I wanted to get all of that kind of intro stuff out of the way so you could get to know me. And um, I hope that you like this episode. Um, We're going to talk about more stuff in the next one, of course. So in the meantime, be sure to subscribe if you like what you're hearing. And we will see you on the next one. Peace. (laughs) 